So here we are uh, back at the Wednesday Bible study. Thank you for being with us. I uh, hope you enjoyed uh, some time last week of going and maybe finding some archives that uh, you may have missed. Uh, but we are back live, uh, and uh, we will continue. If you want to go ahead and get your Bible or something with your Bible on it uh, and turn to where we're going to be today, we'll be finishing chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. We'll be in verse 27. Uh, we'll finish 11, and then we'll go to chapter 12, and we'll work our way to verse 9. Uh, so that, that's where we're going to be uh, in the Wednesday Bible study today. Let me let, me let you in on some things that's going on uh, with manchurch.com. Um, while I was on vacation, uh, the, the brand-new curriculum uh, was released. Uh, matter of fact, it happened just uh, this week on Monday. Uh, this is our third 40-week uh, curriculum. Uh, it is called Be Disciples. Uh, it's, it's just like the others before. Uh, you know, we have the pursuit, which is a pursuit of Christ-centered masculinity. Uh, so you go five weeks, eight different characteristics that should be found uh, in the person of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. Then our second curriculum, it, it's called Real Men. Uh, it takes eight men of the Bible. You spend five weeks on each man. Uh, and then the new one, uh, brand new, it's called Be Disciples. Uh, and you'll we, we go through Be Disciples, and we find these these eight characteristics that, that should be found uh, in, in a disciple of Jesus because we are told by Jesus what? To be disciples and to make disciples. And you've heard me mention in this Bible study many times uh, in the New Testament, the book Christ, I mean, the word Christian only appears three times. Uh, both two times are derogatory, meaning this is a, a derogatory statement made about the disciples of Jesus. Peter tells us, finally, in Second Peter, that we should, uh, you know, embrace the word Christian uh, and is and, and make it something positive. We're we're glad that people are called us Christians, but here's the here's the thing we got to understand, and that's what this curriculum is about. There is not a person in the New Testament. Dallas Willard writes about this in the Spirit of the Disciplines. There's not a person in the New Testament that's called a Christian that isn't already a disciple. Uh, be my disciples. If you want to be my disciples, make disciples. Teach them all that I have commanded you. So we take eight characteristics because maybe you don't know what a disciple is. Uh, we go to Scripture, and we spend five weeks on each characteristic, and that 40-week curriculum is available now as well. So uh, any of these or all of these are available for you, and, of course, other resources available at themanchurch.com uh, to help you with a men's discipleship strategy are just for you uh, as a man, as an individual. And then there are some resources there that I know on the Wednesday Bible study, men and women watch it and listen, that are that are good for growth for anyone. We have, in my opinion, the, the best daily devotional that has ever been written by God uh, through a man, and that's uh, my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers. We have that there. We have uh, resources by, by other uh, authors that can help you, whether you're a man or a woman, if you just want desire to be a follower of Christ. You can still find them there at themanchurch.com. Uh, and uh, so uh, if you want to go check that out, you can. Let me tell you some things that are going on this week. Uh, looking forward to going to uh, Rootville, Georgia. I'll be there Friday night. Now, this event is sold out. Uh, it is at Rootville Road Baptist Church. Uh, the Low Country Boil, but I just want you guys to know that I look forward to seeing you coming up on Friday night. Uh, here's some other things that are going on uh, if you want to uh, participate with themanchurch.com. Also going on this week, Thursday night, Columbus, Mississippi, a man church, uh, First Baptist Church, Columbus, Mississippi, is finishing their first year of the strategy. This is their final man church. Mark Garnett will be speaking, and then they'll be going from the pursuit curriculum into real men and starting their second year. So Mark will be the buffer there. Anyone's welcome to attend in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, Sunday night, First Baptist Church, Tuscaloosa, uh, they're finishing the first curriculum, and Todd Jones will be speaking there on Sunday night, March the 27th. So if you'd like to go to that, you can. And then let me tell you some things that are going on with Sherry and me. We do have a marriage conference on April 2nd. Uh, at Highland Park uh, Baptist Church in Panama City, Florida. Now, the dinner, they are providing dinner for the first 300 people or the first 150 couples. That's sold out. But if you just want to come for the sessions, uh, they have another ticket that's available for that. It doesn't include dinner, but it also doesn't cost as much because it doesn't include dinner. And you can just come to the sessions, and they, and they have those available, and they have a nice sanctuary. So you really – we probably can get to – you know, gosh, 500 couples in there probably. Uh, but uh, so if you want to get that that ticket, you can while those are available for April 2nd, Panama City, Florida. It's just a one-day conference, and then you'll have the rest of the weekend to kind of implement what we're talking about. And if you are a youth pastor and you're uh, joining this Bible study, 
Uh, my wife has joined um, a, a lot of speakers and teachers. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with SLU, uh, Student Leadership University. Uh, my Two of my sons uh, have been involved in all three levels of that, and Sherry has been working with them, my wife, for, for years, and uh, they invited her to come and speak at their Youth Pastors Summit. Uh, it's going to be in Southern California next week at Saddleback. Uh, then it's also going to be in Orlando and Dallas. Uh, Texas, and then uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and Sherry will be speaking on the topic of pain and suffering. And if you're a youth pastor, this is one of those topics uh, that young people struggle with. You know, where is God and all these horrible things that happen in the fallen creation? And Sherry, of course, has been studying this topic for 14-plus years, uh, and they've asked her to come and and, and handle that topic. So if you want to go find out more from SLU, about the Youth Pastors Summit and any of those locations that you could attend, Sherry will be speaking at that as well. And her first one is coming up this uh, this next Tuesday because they're doing the 28th and the 29th. They're in Southern California. All right, so let's pray and let's jump in today. Lord, thank you for today. We are excited and uh, anticipating what you're going to teach us today as we unpack uh, your, your, your holy, perfect Word. And everything that we're studying and everything that you have allowed to be in here is important. Uh, Lord, I, I am a very, very imperfect teacher, and I have no hope without you. Thank you for the things you've allowed me to learn. Uh, help me, Lord, to, uh, to discern and to, uh, to teach this and unpack this correctly under your authority. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you remember when we took our break, we'd gone through another genealogy. Uh, we went through the Tower of Babel. We went through a genealogy, and I told you when we came back, we're about to start the Abraham narrative. Uh, now, we're, we're about to go on, gosh, I believe, guys in the room that, that teach too, I think, what is it, next 14 chapters? We'll deal with Abraham in the book of Genesis. So so we're, we're, this is where it all starts. Um, and so in verse 27, uh, you're going to see that we have one small genealogy here that's going to kind of tie all this together because ultimately these genealogies are going to take us to Abraham, and then, of course, Abraham is going to take us to Jesus. Uh, and and uh, and and you're, you're, we're going to see that. Uh, so we before we did did this chapter before we ended it, it was kind of a, you know, we were really walking through things where Genesis was kind of moving at a rapid pace. Because I want to prepare you for this, Genesis is about to slow down. Uh, we we're, we're gonna we're gonna slow down and really see now God kind of transitioning from creation. And and human beings and 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 dealing with us and 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 kind of running kind of real quick and then he's going to get to Abraham and it's going to slow down and now you're going to see God talking about a special people uh, and, and and covenants and, and promises and ultimately which will lead to the promise of ultimate redemption uh, when 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 God becomes a man and the Son uh, redeems uh, the Jew and the Gentile but that starts now. Uh, so you're, you're going to be introduced um, to a short section about the family of, uh, of Terah, uh, and, and it's going to explain their lives before God called Abram uh, to leave um, Haran. Uh, so if you look at verse 27, we're introduced to Abraham's dad, uh, Terah, uh, and, uh, and, and it's mentioned here mainly to introduce us to his son, but also one of his grandsons, who's going to play a big role too. So listen to this uh, as we open God's holy word. Now these are the generations of, um, uh, of, of Terah. Uh, Terah fathered Abram. Uh, we also know that, uh, that you see that there is going to be another brother uh, here as well. Uh, and uh, you're going to see that. I'm going to be sure I'm saying his name right because I, I, I took the time to find out how to say it. And now I'm looking at, uh, at where it is. Uh, and now I can't find it. But anyway, and, and you, you see that uh, it's going to be, uh, it, it's not it's not like the way it's, it's, it's Nahar. Uh, yeah, that's it, Nahar, and then uh, Haran as well. Now, you can get a little confused here like I did. That you have these sons of, um, uh, of this father, Terah, but, but you'll see that the place they're going to end up is is spelled uh, in in some uh, of the English versions with two R's, and you keep thinking it that it's one of his sons, but it's actually a place that's not named after his son. So just know that that uh, this son's name and the place they're going to stay that's two different things. Uh, and then it says that this this other son, uh, Haran, uh, that that um, that that he fathered who 
lot. So you see, you see that we we've got the the sons, but then we got one grandson mentioned. And why is that? Because we got a narrative coming up that's going to include Abraham and Lot. So this is Moses letting us know, hang on to these two names because we're going to ride a long time on these two. And you almost see when we as we keep going forward that that Lot represents one point of view. And then Abraham represents another point of view, as we see so many times in Scripture when God is dealing with these human beings. Uh, so then we see that uh, that the, the the youngest son, and we believe that he's the youngest, by the way, they're listed here, uh, that um, that he dies in verse 28. It says, uh, Haran died in the presence of his father. And, of course, the father uh, is Terah uh, in the land of his of his kindred, and Ur of the Chaldeans. So let's let's unpack that for a little bit. So we see that Abram is introduced to us in, in Lot for obvious reasons. Haran's death is is important for understanding Lot's attachment uh, first to his grandfather, uh, which is Terah, and then later you're going to see Lot attach himself when Terah dies to who Abraham. Um, and and I, I meant to warn you, and I, I see uh, Tom in here. Some of you that are going through the second curriculum, real men of the Bible, a lot of we're going to talk about with Abraham here. You, you've already, you, you already, you did that when you did the curriculum. So it's going to be repetitive for some of you guys. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna go. We were say we're going through Genesis, so we're gonna go through it. Uh, and then of course uh, we see in twenty eight uh, that um, uh, that after he dies, uh, uh, ha, uh, ha, uh, Harun. Uh, he dies, and and the Ur here we see the land of Ur of the Chaldeans is likely uh, modern day would be in Turkey, uh, and it's in in this location is near the Syrian border in modern day. That's where it is, um, and there's all kinds of commentary about there's two different Urs in the Bible, and there's one of the Chaldeans, and there's one that's not. So you get confused thinking it's one place, but then the, the Chaldeans had not come to this place yet, so it must be that place. That's not all that important. Just know that's that's where it's located. Now, 29, uh, let's let's read that. So in verse 29, and Abram and, and, and Nahar took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sari, and the name of Nahor's wife uh, is Milcah, the daughter of um, uh, Haran, the father of Milcah, and also of Ishkah. Now, l- let's go ahead and unpack it, even though it's going to hit us a little bit later on. And I get a lot of emails about this. I get a lot of emails about this. People get real confused when they start realizing that people are marrying their family. Uh, and that is true. Uh, and they just ain't enough people around. Uh, for the for for God to populate the earth without some people marrying family members, uh, and that is going on, and that is being allowed by God at this time. Now I'll, that's going to change uh, when we get the law of Moses, uh, but uh, but but right now just just kind of stand by. But you got to understand what's going on here. So uh, we we know that uh, that Abram and, and Nahor were were likely younger uh, than uh, than Haran and married after he was dead. Now, neither one of them have children at this time. Abram marries, and let's just go ahead and jump out there because they're going to tell us this in chapter 20. Let's go ahead and deal with it. Abram is going to marry his half-sister. Sarah is his half-sister. Okay, that was common uh, during this time, and we're going to be told this in chapter 20. She's 10 years younger than Abram, uh, and at this time marrying a family was not forbidden by God. So go ahead and deal with that. It, it, this this is this is um, this is a long long time ago, uh, and you didn't have the problems you'd have with it now. Uh, now, if you want to know when this finally ends, uh, if you want to make some notes, we do see that in the law of Moses, God does forbid it later, uh, and you can see that God uh, tells Moses in Leviticus uh, chapter eighteen verse nine that this is over now. We're not doing this anymore. Uh, chapter twenty verse seventeen, same thing, and then in Deuteronomy. 27, 22, you see God telling Moses, nobody's marrying her sister anymore. That's over. And, of course, now this this was a half-sister, but still it was a sister. Um, um, and and, and just, just know that going forward. And it'll also explain some of the things you're going to say Abraham do a little bit later. Uh, Sari, that, uh, that, that, that name means princess. Uh, and, of course, when, uh, when, when you look at um, the, the other uh, uh, wife that was uh, his, that his brother married Milka. Uh, her name means queen. Uh, so now let's look at verse thirty because this is important. 
this just kind of jumps out as Moses is putting all this together for us. Verse 30, now Sari was barren, and she had no child. Now, we do know that Abram's about going to be Abraham, and Sari's going to be Sarah. Uh, you know, all that's coming, but this is these, these are the names uh, here in this part of Scripture before all that takes place. And, and the reason why this is important in verse 30 is that, that her plight is quickly summarized here in Scripture, and this is a really, really big deal. Uh, if you're a woman uh, uh, during this time and you can't have children, your life is miserable. People consider you to be worthless. You have nothing to bring to the table. Uh, this, this brings much anguish, uh, bitterness, and we can assume and that's all I'm doing. You know, and one one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard said it's okay to speculate as long as you acknowledge you're speculating. Uh, what you don't do is speculate and don't tell everybody you're speculating. But I think it makes sense. This probably caused some conflict in the marriage uh, because um, you know the men of Abraham's time uh, marrying a woman who was barren uh, and you not being able to produce any offspring. Now we know this is going to lead to a big problem, but uh, but but this also is something I want you to pay attention to. Uh, that that I just learned in, in the in the, this last week uh, studying scripture and uh, in, in in our uh, Sunday school class. If you notice in scripture, like we we will also see what in the book of Samuel we see Hannah, she's barren, she's praying for her son. We see Sari, she's barren. She and you see these things coming up. We see what happens with Rachel and and all these things and the difficulty and all this stuff going on. Because what this is doing is this is Scripture. This is God preparing us by showing us he can do miraculous births. And there's a big one coming. Okay, and, and so this is all setting the table that, that somebody may, that, hey, biology may say you're barren. You hear me? Nature may say you're barren. Of course, God is the God of nature. But I say you're not. Biology may say you're a virgin. And that you can't conceive, I say you can. You see, you see where all this is being set up. So God is starting to let everybody know uh, that He can produce uh, offspring however He wants to, uh, and that if if He wants to produce offspring in somebody's womb, there's nothing we can really do to stand against it. And uh, and also to to not give up hope. If God says He's going to do something, He's going to do something. Uh, and it may not be on our timeline, but He's going to do something. Uh, so. Um, so now let's look at verse 31 and 32. Uh, so we have uh, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sari his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. I'd underline that. Uh, why, why is he taking them to Canaan? He's going to show them what he's going to give them. That that Abraham's going to be told that, that, that Abraham's offspring is going to get this land. Uh, and we'll talk about that today before we leave. But when they came to, um, to Haran, I say this is where this is confusing. There's the same exact name of, of the son who's died, but this is actually also a name of a place, so make a note of that. And they settled there. Uh, that's important too. Underline that. Verse 32, the days of um, Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. All right, so uh, we're not sure uh, what the intention of Daddy was to go to Canaan because we're going to find out here in a minute about Abram. It's pretty clear. They settle uh, in Haran, which uh, many times is spelled with two R's. Uh, they don't make it to Canaan, uh, but we do know that Abram and, and Nahor, uh, that they eventually will settle there. Uh, and uh, this place, not the person, but this place, uh, is on uh, the um, uh, it, it is about 20 miles uh, southeast of modern Odessa. If you kind of want to know, if you have any idea, and you know geology pretty well, uh, near the uh, uh, the B A L I H River, uh, and it also told us that uh, that Daddy and Granddaddy lived 205 years, and he died there. Now, again, I want to prepare you as we jump into 12. We've been clicking along, but this narrative that God wants us to know is about to drastically slow down. Uh, we focus on Abram's life now and his relationship with God, who calls him to be the bearer of the promise. Now, that he's going to be a blessing to all nations, and that begins in 2091 B.C. when Abram is 75 
and a call to leave his father's house, which he's now living in, in uh, Haran. So let's look at the very first thing that God says to Abram. So daddy's dead. I've now got Lot, uh, who was my daddy's grandson. Okay, he, I've, I've got my nephew. Um, and now I, I'm, I'm here with my other brother who's still alive, and we're staying here at daddy's place, and now we're going to hear from God what Abraham is supposed to do in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay. Now, the writer of Hebrews makes, makes it real clear here uh, that, that Abraham makes what, he, what, what the writer of Hebrews, what we call uh, the Hall of Fame of Faith. The writer of Hebrews doesn't call it that, but he sets it up like he intended us to call it that. And, um, but I found something real interesting studying some of the commentaries that go along with this. And we'll see this when the narrative of Abraham ends in Genesis. The first thing that the Lord says to Abram is to go. And the last thing that the Lord says directly to Abram or Abraham when we get there is take. So go to the land, and then the last thing he says is now take your son and sacrifice him to me. Go and take. That's the first and last thing that God says to Abraham. So let's unpack the go first, and we'll get to the, the take later, which will be a very, very powerful message. So in verse 1, uh, he's to go in the destination according according to Hebrews again, and write this down, Hebrews 11.8, according to the writer of Hebrews, because there is debate about this, but in, in, in my opinion, in the opinion of many of the theologians, I mean, the writer of Hebrews has to kind of be the final word on it. Uh, is that Abraham doesn't know where he's going, that his destination is really unknown. Uh, and so what, what, what you realize is that God is saying, I want you to go, but he says, what, the destination, I'm going to show you, but he doesn't know it in the beginning. And, and, I, and I started thinking about that in my own life and, and how to apply this to my own life. I don't know about you. Maybe you guys are – your faith is just further down the road than mine, and, and mine is growing – but if God told me to go, the next thing I would ask is where? Where are we going? And God says, well, I'll, t- I'll show you, but I'm, I, I want to know right now, are you ready to go? And so that, that's the one before us right now. And we talked about that a little you know, in, in the curriculum on our five weeks on Abraham is are we all ready and, and, and are you all ready to say to God, my go is on the table? Now, I'm just going to be honest with you as my brothers and if those of you are sisters that are watching or listening, that sounds so straightforward, and, and we all know what to say, don't we? Oh, I'll put my go on the table. But i got to tell you something. I've spent a lot of my time as a follower of Jesus terrified of the go because I'm afraid of where he's going to send me. I, you know, it, it, we go, I'm all in. Well, unless... Well, I mean, what if right now you said my goes on the table and God said, well, okay, well, this, this, this company that you love and this company you created, it's over. And what I need you to do, I need you to go to this place where I want you to serve me and it's going to be a reset and a do over. Now you'll never starve. You'll never be thirsty. You'll always have clothes and you'll always have a roof, but it's going to be a much different life. So, I mean, do we have conditions on the go? I'll be honest with you. I, I have for most of my life. And, and, for mo- I, 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 and I know people that have conditions on the go for their children. They don't even want their kids to put a go on the table because they're afraid of where God might take them. And, of course, that's going to get to the take, isn't it? So, so we, we have to just let this settle. Don't, don't just don't whatever. Let me tell you what don't, don't do especially if it's the first time you've ever studied this part of the Bible. Do not just shout out, my goes on the table, because you know that's not true. And, and God knows that's not true. Now, Abraham did go. He, 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 and, and, some, and what was his saving faith? Not that he believed he should go. See, that, that, that's real important. Real, real important. It's one thing to believe that you should go, but it's another thing to go. 
Because what's the truth? What we actually do. It's not what we say. I believe you want me to go. I just ain't going. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think about my dad. If, if my dad said, I want you to get up out my chair, and I said, well, I believe you want me to get up out of this chair. I just ain't getting up. But I believe you want me to. How, how do you think that would go? Huh? Yeah, he would have helped me up. And so, hey, you really walked into something true. Your, your Heavenly Father helped you up too. But you don't want to go that way. Because he loves you enough to get you there. See, see, I needed to be, I needed to be weaker and I needed to be broken. And he kept telling me that. And he eventually got me there. But I should have just got up. You know? And so so he's gonna do what he's gonna do because he loves you enough to do it. But I'd go ahead and say that I have faith in you that wherever you want me to go to be in your will for my life is the place to be. Even if I don't think it right now. How many times does that happen in your life? How many times have you done something God told you to do? You didn't want to do it. You weren't excited about it. You didn't want any part of it. You know? And then when you got there, man, it was sweet, wasn't it? You thought, how stupid was I not to want to do this? It feels so good to be doing what God called you to do. And it feels miserable not to, no matter how comfortable you keep trying to make your place, make yourself. He'll make you miserable. I had somebody ask me that. How do, how do I know? And I, and I remember... The first time I started learning about because, you know, we talk about the call. How do I know about a call? I'll tell you one of the things I've learned. When I'm not in God's call, I'm miserable. It's like I can't, I can't, get, I can't get peace. I can't, I can't get settled. I can't, I, something just ain't right. And he'll just make you miserable until you move. And then you move, and all of a sudden you feel that peace come upon you. You're like, okay. You know, I mean, you may not hear a voice come out of the darkness, but you'll feel, you'll, you'll feel a check in your spirit when it's not right. And you'll feel a comfort in your spirit when it is. Everybody agree with that? So so is the go there? I will tell you, my goal has has fewer, has has fewer uh, 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 my contract with God. It, it's starting to be a little less Rick ended and more him ended. Now I, I haven't completely gotten one of those contracts where he's got he's got he's got everything and I got nothing. I'm still holding I, – I still got a few requirements that he's slowly taking away. So there ain't no telling where he's taking me. I, I'm, I've done, I'm doing what he's told me to do, but I'm not sure where I'm going to end up because right now I keep saying what I'm going to do more than I should. And, uh, and so I'm, 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 I want to get to the place where I truly mean it when I say do whatever you need to do with me because that's where I want to be. Well, Abraham was there. And you know what, though? God loves us enough, too, to be patient. But remember, just because, he's, just because we learned this in knowing God, he's slow to anger, but that doesn't mean he doesn't ever anger. He's just slow to anger. Um, all right, so, so Abraham has been told that, that he's going to leave the country. And now this is one thing that make you feel a little bit better because I, I really learned it the first time getting ready for this about uh, you know where we are compared to Abraham's faith and and his is that he he he's he's going to a place that he's not sure, but then we're going to find out that really as he goes on, he doesn't quite get to what God meant until he's done with his kindred. He hangs on to his brother a little bit longer than he was supposed to, and it's when he finally separates from Lot, his nephew, and is just on his own. That's when he finally is doing what God called him to do. Because God said, "Leave, leave your kindred. Don't, don't, don't take them with you." And he, he hung on to Lot for a while, which you know you can see where he would say, "Well, surely it didn't mean for me to abandon my nephew, my, my you know, my, my daddy's grandson." And but, but what, 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 what you're finding is that, that that when that separation takes place, that's when Abraham is solely in what God had called him to do. Everybody with me on that? All right. So let's talk about um, two and three because these are some powerful verses here. And God says to to Abram. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I would underline that. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we all know what God means here, but, but Abraham doesn't know what he means, not, not at this point. So let's, let's unpack that. Remember, we talked about the numbers in the Bible. What is God's perfect number? 
Seven. What is God's number of completion? Seven. So there's seven things that God says to, to Abraham. Number one, he says, I will make you a great nation. Number two, I will bless you. Number three, I will, I will make your name great. We're going to unpack that a little bit here because dudes have a hard time with that. Four, be a blessing. Now, this is an imperative here. The first three are promises from God. He now gets into an imperative here or maybe an invitation to Abram where he says, you be a blessing. Okay. Five, I will bless those who bless you. Six, I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And then seven, all the peoples of the earth will consider themselves blessed through you. That, that'll be the people's reaction to what I'm doing in you. Okay, everybody with me? Everybody got seven? Anybody need me to repeat them again? Everybody good? All right, so the promise of a great nation is ironic in light of what? Sari's barren. He's 75 years old. Now I want you to think about the faith here. You're going to make a great nation through me, and my wife can't even have a baby? Now, how are you going to do that? I mean, you've got to have a child to start a nation, but God says, I'm going to do it. So think about that, that, that moment. So God gets on the table right out of the gate that God will make him great. I mean, God, God puts that out there so he didn't have to wonder about it. And, and see, the difference about this promise, so first of all, he says that he's going to, he's going to make a, a great nation with a, with a 75-year-old man and a barren wife. He's going to bless him. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be blessed, which also shows that God does bless people, and there's nothing sinful. Sometimes people have a lot. You're going to see that Abraham really showed up with quite – he's quite wealthy, Okay. And then you're going to see this thing, I will make you great. So why do you think God is talking about that? What just happened in Babylon? Remember the Tower of Babel? What? The people were trying to make themselves great. God wasn't making them great. The people were trying to make themselves great. They were elevating them. I'll make myself great. I'll, give, I'll make myself a great name. And I want you to write this down if you got something to write with. And if not, I want you to go back to the archive if you're in here live. And I, every single man in this room, we got to get this, and we got to get this right now. This is a big statement that's coming up. What God's saying here, and you saying here, and you got to have it. Are you ready? A true great name can only be conferred by God. And men don't believe that. You think you're going to make yourself great. You'll never be great. I don't care how many people applaud you. I don't care how much stuff you got. I don't care how many awards you've been given by the world. If you have not been, if your name has not been elevated by Almighty God, you don't have a great name. A true great name can only be conferred by God. Period. I'm going to let that settle a minute. So let's ask ourselves that question. When you look at us as men of God, if we look at you as a woman of God, if you're, if you're looking in on this or listening, would you say that God is, is conferring your name great because of all the impact you've had for his kingdom? How is God using you? Because if God's not using you, and, and you know it, it, what was it? I forget who I credit that. Who was the guy who said it? that they lived in fear of being very successful at something that doesn't matter. I forget who said that. It was a great statement. I worry that I might end up being very successful in something that's meaningless. Because I got, I got news for you. If the world is all you got to bring to the throne, you think God needs what you've done in the world? <laughs> it's laughable. But what about if God looks at you and says, well done? Well done, good and faithful servant. I told you to make disciples, and you did. I told you to teach people all that I had commanded you. First of all, you, you figured out what I've commanded you. You actually studied my word. You actually spent time in prayer, not to ask me for stuff, but to get more intimately connected to me. And you know what? 
I did great things through you elevating your name because your name is reflecting me. You truly have a great name. But if you've elevated you and you've decided what great is, I've decided what great is. Let me tell you something. This right here, you see this? Meaningless. Meaningless. Meaningless if it hasn't pointed anybody to Jesus. Completely meaningless. And I'm pointing at the Rick and Bubba logo for those of you that are not watching. That doesn't mean anything. If that has not pointed anybody to Jesus, it will go and be vaporized when God refines this earth. It'll mean nothing. And that's what he's talking about. What do we remember about Abraham? That he had faith in God. And God did great things through him. The fourth blessing is a blessing to, to kind of receive the first three and then make you a blessing to others. So listen to this. If you say, I'll tell you what, I'm all about those first three. I'd like to be, I'd like to have a great nation that I'm that I made, or God made through me. I'd like to be blessed by God. I'm all about that. And I'd like for God to make my name great. Then here comes four. Well, then be a blessing to other people. Eh. What? Well, it's not just for me? No, as a matter of fact, it's not for you. So I will do these things in you so you can then go be a blessing to other people. Can I tell you this? It's funny that I saw I just saw it. What was I watching? Where did I see that? I just saw it earlier today, Dave Ramsey. I love Dave. He doesn't know I have an American Express card, but I love Dave. Um, sometimes, every time I see Dave Ramsey, because he and I are acquaintances, and, and I always have fun with him. He'll say, hey, how you doing? I said, tell you what, just got a new credit card. I bought whole life insurance, and I'm leasing a truck. <laughs> and, and, he just, and he just goes nuts. Uh, but anyway, so, but, but Ramsey was saying something that was 100% true, 100% true. He said, you don't understand how much fun and how much joy you will have giving other people money and, and, and financing ministries and feeding people and clothing people and giving people cars. He said, if you will just get your act together financially and you'll have more than enough, if you want to truly enjoy what you've been given, you'll never experience anything like giving it away. There's nothing quite like it. I bet, I bet all of you in here, some of you in here are very wealthy, and I think you all would agree and some of you, you still can experience whether the world considers you wealthy or not. There's nothing quite like somebody saying, I have a need, and you say, you know what, I'm in a position to help you, and I'm going to. Doesn't that feel great? Well, that's what he's talking about. So if God's going to take you and bless you, he's blessing you, and he's blessing me so that we can bless other people. And he even tells Moses, that's going to be part of, I mean Moses, Abraham, that that's going to be part of the deal. Uh, number five, he says, what, I'm, I'm going to bless those that bless you. So this is, this, that's a good feeling. I mean, when, when you think about five and six, cause they're kind of paired as polar opposite, God promises Abram's blessings will become blessings to the others who look favorably on him and protection from those who are hostile. Uh, kind of reminds you what he's going to tell. He's going to tell Abraham in, in chapter 15, I think verse one, that he is his shield. You know, the Lord is my shield. And, and what Abraham was being told is those that, that, are, that, that, that look favorably upon you, they'll receive a blessing too. Now, those who come against you, I got it. I'll protect you from them. Isn't that a great feeling? What about if you, if you went to bed every night knowing that anybody who came against you, God would deal with them? What, do you live in a way that that kind of protection should be provided? I mean, what, what would God be protecting? I mean, it, it's, it's, I, I've told you this many times, that, and I certainly don't go looking for trouble. Don't do that. Don't hear me say that. Don't go looking for trouble. Okay, trouble's going to come. What Jesus say? Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got all the trouble you need. But when we were doing this, the manchurch.com thing, and God was showing how this was going to work and laying it out, and it was going so well. And then we had our first attack, and that was the day that I celebrated. And God protected us. 
and I was talking with a friend of mine, and we, we were at some banquet, and he said, how's everything going with themanchurch.com? I said, really, today, terrible. Uh, today we had a huge setback. Had a major attack on us today, spiritual. And he said, well, man, I'm, I'm, and I said, no, 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 no. I said, I'm, I'm excited. I said, I've been celebrating all day. And he said, celebrate. And I said, yeah, before this, it was running so smooth, I didn't think God was in it. There was no opposition to it whatsoever. But when that opposition came and he did protect us, I said, I know he's in it. Now, if opposition had came and he hadn't protected us or no opposition had come at all, I probably would have thought, well, maybe this is something I've come up with. It's not something he's come up with. Because I got news for you. If he's in it, the adversary's coming after it. And that's what holds some of us back if we've been straight up. You've seen what happens to some of those that go out there and you kind of you kind of hear off in the back of your, your 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 mind back there. You can hear the apostle Paul talking to young Timothy in Second Timothy three, twelve, I think, and he says, "Hey Timothy, let let the men know that all of them that choose to live a godly life, they will be persecuted. Not you might, you will." I mean, you look over there in Acts chapter seven, Stephen's getting stoned. And he's preaching, and he's preaching. As a matter of fact, Stephen is talking about this. You ever, you ever go and look at this? He's talking about what God's telling Abraham right now. He's going through all this in front of these people because they're supposed to be the, they're the offspring of Abraham. And he said, well, let me tell you about Abraham. And he's, he's talking about what we're studying right now. He knows it so well. He's given locations. He's given everything about when God spoke to Abraham and God did this. And they're going nuts. And it says that he looks up and Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, standing at the right hand of a Father, approving of Stephen, who was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, and full of power, the only man in the Bible that gets all four of those. And he's in charge of the food pantry at the church. He didn't want to be made a big deal out of. He's a deacon. I mean, like a deacon like it's supposed to be. Not like modern-day deacons that think they're elders when they're really just deacons. Uh, they're supposed to be the servants of the church. They're not supposed to be running the church. And so Stephen was supposed to go and just take care of the widows, be sure they're getting the food and nobody's withholding it from them. But he's preaching with faith, Holy Spirit, power, and grace. Where's the grace when he says, hey, when they're killing me, don't hold this against them? Who did he learn that from? Jesus. But the stoning didn't stop. Jesus didn't intervene. He intervened spiritually because Stephen's spirit came to Jesus. But he didn't come and stop the stoning of Stephen's body. You know what he said? Stephen did exactly what I told him to. What happened? They killed him. But I told y'all about that. Before I ascended, y'all knew that. Stephen knew that. That had been passed along through the church. Because I told the guys when I was ascending, I taught them for 40 days after I had resurrected, and I taught them before I went to the cross that people were going to hate them because people hate me. And that's part of it. So Stephen wasn't surprised when people started throwing rocks at him, and he really wasn't surprised that I didn't intervene. He just wanted to say and do what I told him to do because that's what a disciple is. Says what I say to say, does what I say to do. And you may die in the process. Most do, <laughs> right? A disciple of Jesus should not really sign up for a long life. I, I love that when uh, the, oh, what's his name, that went into the tribes and they killed him. They, uh, what was his name? Missionary? Yeah, yes, Elliot. Do you remember his wife said, Elizabeth Elliot, which if you've never read any of her stuff, wow. She said, my husband never said he was going to have a long life. He just wanted one that was effective. His goal was never a long life. It was an impactful life, and he certainly got that because those people eventually were reached. But he was killed in the process. But what he was called to do still happened. And so this is what we're signing up for, and I think that's why some of us like to say we're signing up for it, but we're really not. And I've got news for you. God knows our heart. And he knows whether what we're saying is also what we're believing. So, verses 4 through 6. So there's the seven things that God said. One, a promise, and then one, an, an imperative. 
So now let's look at verses 4 through 6. So Abram went. Underline that. So God said go, okay, over in verse 1. And then over in verse 4, what, 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 what do we see here? Abram went. So it's one thing to say that God tells you to go, but then the question is, will you go? And Abram says, yes, I will. So that's the faith the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Not that Abram believed he should go. That wasn't a saving faith. A lot of people believe in Jesus. That's not a saving faith. The saving faith is if you have faith in Jesus. You've left faith in self. You've placed faith in Jesus, and your life shows that you truly believe that Jesus is who he said. When you say you repent, you actually repent. When you say you leave your own authority and you come under the authority of Jesus, that actually happens. That's not earning you salvation. That's just the proof of it. That's actually a saving faith. We are saved by grace through, say it, we are saved by grace through faith. And that's a faith of action. Right? And so we're seeing Abraham saving faith. So Abram went as who told him? The Lord. As the Lord told him, and we see Lot, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when they departed from Haran. Verse 5. And Abram took uh, Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, uh, Abram passed through the land of the place, and then we get into things that, that are hard to say, Sketchum, and then we get into this oak, uh, this oak of Moray, it's so funny reading some of these commentaries. Did you know there's pages and pages of commentary on, does this mean a literal oak tree? Probably. I mean, it, it, it's, is it, yeah, probably. It, it, it's, uh, well, we don't know if, is this the oak like we know the oak? Um, do these people really, do they enjoy all this? Just pages of, what did you write about today? Whether the English translation to oak is actually oak. Is it an oak, uh, like an oak oak tree? Or maybe an oak, not so oak tree. It's oak, it's. It's an oak tree, okay? So, so, but what do we see here? We see, first of all, that Abram is doing what God said, but he still hasn't left Lot. He needs to do that. That's coming. We see that he has acquired a lot of possessions, that he's a wealthy man, right? We see that. So that's one of these things. Don't buy into some of this newfangled, you know, some of the most, and this is something that Dallas Willard wrote about too. He said this concept, that wealthy people are greedy and poor people are wonderful is just hogwash, total hogwash. There are wealthy people that are greedy, and there's poor people that are greedy, and there's wealthy people that are humble, and there's poor people that are humble. He said some of the greediest people I've ever met are poor because all they ever try to do is win the lottery or something. They're obsessed with it. He said some of the greediest people I've ever met. And he said some of the humble people and some of the most godly people I've ever met are actually quite wealthy. So don't buy into some of this newfangled, Jesus was a hippie, and we're all we're all social workers now, and 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 as, and you try to be as you just try to be as poor as you can possibly be, and as poor as you can possibly be, that means that you're you're closer to God somehow than somebody's wealthy. Well, what's wrong with Abraham? What was wrong with Job? They said that Job was blameless and upright compared to the rest of the people of his generation, and he was extremely wealthy. So this thing, and I don't know about y'all, kind of back to what Ramsey was talking about. I have worked to sponsor children all over the world. I've worked to fund ministries that go everywhere. And do you know that just about every ministry I've ever been part of was funded by wealthy people? Good luck on your fundraising if you can't get any wealthy people to come along. Okay? So most of the time, God has these people set up. Now, they could be in sin by not doing it, but I've never funded anything that advanced the kingdom of God that wealthy people didn't help. We did Stadium Fest three years in a row. Wanted to get it to where nobody had to buy a ticket. Everybody come for free. We had about two to $300,000 we had to raise every time. Where do you think that came from? Where there's some people that said, here's 20 bucks. They certainly did, and we appreciate them. But we wouldn't have done it without the wealthy. It, it, it was those $10,000 and $50,000 and $75,000 donations that got us there. And those came from wealthy people who love Jesus. 
You know, and so uh, because because you say, well, y'all probably got some companies. You ain't going to get a company out there to give you money for Jesus. That ain't going to happen. Not anymore. There was a time they wanted to be associated with that kind of stuff. Now, what they want to know now is, are you going you gonna to feed anybody or we'll, we'll go with you into, you know, some poor area of town and, and we want to put our logo on all that. You know, you're going to put together a day camp for kids. We'll put our logo on that. No, we want to actually go out and see if we can't bring some people to Jesus. Don't put us in that. We can't be associated with that. Those days are over. So you're not going to get sponsorships from corporate America unless they're already devout followers of Jesus. But that old thing where you roll on over to some big company, I mean, you couldn't even get companies to keep funding the Boy Scouts until they were started letting you know gay troop leaders in. You know, they were all going to abandon them. Because, see, they're, they're, they're reeds that swing in the wind. Whatever is, is the wokeness of the day, my little company's got to be part of that. So you ain't going to get them to fund Stadium Fest, I promise you that. So it all came from followers of Jesus who had money. So, uh, and, and we were thankful for it. And they joyfully gave it. But where would we go if they didn't exist? So come off that garbage of that bad theology of somehow being wealthy is evil and those people aren't with Jesus. That's not true. That's never been true throughout the Scripture. What about the young rich ruler, Rick? No, that was his problem. He might have said to another man, I want you to give up your porn and follow me. And, and there are a lot of men that say, eh, you got to give up those women and follow me. Hmm? you got to give up alcohol and follow me because that's your problem. I'm not pointing at you, Tom. I'm pointing just in figurative that way. I, I'm, what, what, what I'm saying is the wealth was that guy's problem. It's not a problem for everybody. You know? I mean, look, look at what the Caffey family's done, you know, with, with Chick-fil-A. Look, look at what Hobby Lobby does. These are very wealthy Christians, and they put their money where their faith is. But, uh, but, but so don't read into that that somehow that guy was wicked and evil because he was wealthy. That wasn't it. He was wicked and evil because he worshipped his wealth, and he wasn't willing to give it up to follow Jesus. What did Paul tell you? You may have things, but just have an open hand. You know, and, and if, Jesus, if God wants them, give it to him. He didn't need it, but, he, but he, if he says that's standing in the way of you growing, then get rid of it. If it's an idol, get rid of it. I, I, the, the farm that my family and I have, you know how we got it? The guy who owned it said it became an idol for him. He said, God's told me I can't have this anymore. And if it becomes an idol for me, he'll take it away from me. And I'll, and I'll, I'll move away from it. If it draws me closer to him, like, like is what it does now, I'll stay with it. If it pushes me away from him, I'll get rid of it. I don't, I, I don't, whatever he wants to do to get rid of, I'll get rid of it. But, it, but, but there's nothing wrong with having it if you have it in the right place because he's the one that gave it to you. As long as you don't start thinking you got it somehow. Well, you all, your brilliance. <laughs> I was this brilliant business guy. God's laughing, saying, yeah, I wonder where that came from. Um, it didn't come from you. So, uh, so we, as, as I said, that, that we see that, um, uh, that Lot is with uh, Abraham, but in chapter 13 you're going to see Lot separate, and he was told to leave his father's house completely, and we'll see him uh, uh, solving that problem in 13. Uh, and then um, when, when you see this, uh, uh, this, this stop in uh, – uh, and and sketch them where the where the big oaks are. Uh, you're going to see in chapter 33, 34, and 35. This place plays a big role. It's not just a a passing mention by Moses, because you're going to see some of the great patriarchs of the Bible. They're going to find themselves in the same place. So this is a special place to God. And this you're going to see throughout Genesis. This is a place where God speaks directly to the patriarchs of the Bible. And Abraham was the first one um, that uh, that was spoke to there. Uh, and you'll also find the same. Um, uh, this the same oaks mentioned in Deuteronomy 11:30. If you want to uh, to jot that down, um, so you also see that the Canaanites are mentioned here, and that's just mentioned because Moses is setting the stage for the later interactions with many of the tribes of Canaan, the Ites. I just always call them the Ites. You know, this is Moses going now. There's Canaan. Just pay attention to this. We're gonna have a lot of we're gonna have a lot of issues with these people going forward. Um, and, and all the ites. Verse 7, Then the Lord, underline that, appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east, Ai, 
And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb, or Neheb, as I actually say it. So in 7, you see that this is that, you know, remember what we said in Scripture when you see the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's one of God's names, Yahweh, appears to a patriarch. And what was Abram's response to the appearance of the Lord? Worship. I'm building an altar, worship. So what is worship? It's a response to the presence of God. I hope it's not anything else. We actually talk about that in the new curriculum. So then you see that Abram has extended stay in Bethel where he built another altar to the Lord, and it says that he called on the name of the Lord. Now, what does this suggest? This is good. What does this suggest? That there's a regular formal time of worship. Abraham, Abram at this time, he is he is starting a formal worship of God that seems to be happening on a regular basis. You know, he, he builds an altar to to the Lord. Uh, the, the Lord calls to him. His response is worship. And 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 we have to ask ourselves this question: Do you find yourself looking for those moments where you just stop because of the presence of God in your life and worship Him? I don't mean to ask Him for anything. Just worship him. I remember the first time I heard this mention, it was um, Gary Habermas. Do you remember that? And uh, he is an apologetic that defends the resurrection. Uh, he, he played a big role in Lee Strobel uh, coming to Christ in the case for Christ. And, um, and he says, because if the resurrection happened, <laughs> how can you not believe? And, and there's a lot of proof of the resurrection. And Gary really lands there. And I remember it had nothing to do with that. I just remember he said, I'm going to make a suggestion to everybody in this church, and I was there for the service. And he said, I want you to, to right now make a commitment that you're going to spend 10 minutes, 10 minutes in prayer doing nothing but thanking and worshiping God. Don't make a request. Do nothing but thank him and worship him for 10 minutes. And this was the thing that convicted me to my core. He said, and here's the problem. Right now, 99% of you are saying that's a good idea, but only about 1% of you will actually do it. All of you say it's a good idea, but you just won't do it. And see, that's that, that's that faith in action. That's that faith in action. What, what Abraham was saying is, I'm in the presence of the Lord, and that demands worship. And this was something that he did on a regular basis. So we, we will see him continue uh, to go southward uh, toward uh, Negev. Uh, and this confirms now, and this is where we're going to end this and we're done, this confirms that the Lord God Almighty had made sure that Abram had seen this land from the north to the south, God had shown him the land that he would give to his descendants. He showed him all of it. He took him on a tour and said, this is all going to be my people, which also goes back to what is true, not very popular, that all that's going on in the Middle East with the Palestinians and the Israelis, everybody wanting the Israelis to give up more and more land. And truthfully, if you look at the word of God, They've already given up land that is theirs. They actually have more than given to them by God than they're claiming right now. It's a much bigger area. And one day they're going to have it back. So if you're going to pick a, a team there, <laughs> I'd pick God's. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for this this word and this conviction and Lord, thank you that we sit here in the church age, and here we are in Abraham and, and seeing you setting the stage for, for what will eventually come, and that is our Savior. But look at us living on the other side of that. We are fortunate enough to be living in the church age. We are living on the other side of your resurrection, your redemption, your reconciliation. Thank you for the grace that you have offered us through your sacrifice. And there's nothing that we do to make you any greater than you are. We don't change you. 
but thank you for changing us. Lord, I pray, as I, as I do every Wednesday, if there's anybody in this room or anywhere, anybody out there uh, that needs some help, if I can be that vessel, Lord, I pray that you have them keep in, just continue to get in touch. Thank you for those that you have, have brought to you through something as simple as some men gathering together at an office to study your word. May you be glorified. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us. Lord willing, we'll talk next week.